Hello and welcome to another audio version of Burnt Toast. This is a newsletter where we explore questions and some answers about fat phobia, diet culture, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith. I'm a journalist who covers weight stigma and diet culture. I'm the author of The Eating Instinct and the forthcoming Fat Kid Phobia. And I am so excited today um, with my guest, Marcusel Mercedes, or Mikey, as she goes by, um, who is here with me. She is a writer and doctoral student from the Bronx who is completing her PhD at Brown University School of Public Health, where she's specializing in weight stigma, racism, and critical public health studies. And oh my goodness, we need her work so much. (laughs) Welcome, Mikey. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I love your, I love your like, like podcasting voice. You're just like, welcome to, like, welcome to Burnt Toast. (laughs) I love it. It's so soothing. You know what? It's from, well, I did used to have a podcast and then also I do a lot of radio interviews and I've sort of honed my radio voice. This is my NPR voice. Um, I love it. (laughs) And yeah, it's definitely, uh, yeah, it's not my normal voice at all, but I, I also am someone who spent a long time hating the sound of my own voice. Um, And having to get over that. And I realized one of the things I hated about it is that my, yeah, I do this bit with my friends where I'm like, I'm Virginia and I talk about diet culture. Like I have this very <laughs> high pitched voice. So when I do radio, I try to bring it down a little bit <laughs> um, and sound more like the 40 year old grown up person that I am. I love extent. it. I love it. <laughs> Keep doing it because it, it honestly makes me, it makes me feel so important. I'm just like, yes, please. Uh, You are very important. Your work is massively important. So all about that. Okay. (laughs) So (laughs) the first thing we have to talk about is the piece you did a couple weeks ago. Um, You published this just brilliant searing takedown of Wegovy, the newest FDA approved weight loss drug. I may Mm -hmm. be mispronouncing it because it's a weird made up name. Wegovy. (laughs) Who knows? Um, I am going right. to link to your piece in the transcript. And honestly, anyone who hasn't read it yet, just like press pause, stop listening to me with my radio voice <laughs> and go and read Mikey's piece. You pulled so many important things together. And, you know, I think, the, you know, probably the most important thing, well, there's so many things, but one of the things that really jumped out to me is how you, um, drew all these threads about how the diet industry finances these drugs. Because whenever we see these new headlines of like brand new weight loss drug, hooray, FDA approved, like it's like presented in this very, you know, like, just like, (laughs) this is unequivocally good news and we should take it as such when there's this whole sort of, you know, machine behind that happening. And I think, you know, I think people who read those headlines, you know, sort of loosely know that say scientists are required to disclose whether they have a financial stake in the research they're doing, but they definitely don't understand. I mean, I have been reporting on this stuff for a really long time and I don't even totally understand all the ways that you showed that, you know, that is just a starting point. The financial disclosure on a study does not tell the whole story. So absolutely. Yeah. So why don't you walk us through that a little bit? Like, what does a financial disclosure do and what does it tell us? What does it not tell us? And why in the case of WeGovi, is there just so much more money at stake? Right. Um, So the first thing to know is that to publish in in most journals, I I mean, I don't think it's a stretch to say, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a stretch to say any, like any journal to publish in now, especially those that, um, have biomedical research. So any journal that you try to publish in, if it's peer reviewed, will ask if you have any like financial conflicts of interest. But I think the, the part that gets weird is that people who aren't familiar with that process usually don't understand that there usually isn't a point at which the journal editors will say, Oh, you have too much of an, a vested interest. We're not going to take this article. Mm. So that doesn't really happen. Um, so like, for example, we see that there are three different authors on that WeGovi study that are employees of Novo Nordisk. And then there's also two that additionally hold stock. And that was not enough to not have this paper published. So, so it's like, we'll just close it, <laughs> but we'll go right ahead and report this as like unbiased science. Like, yes, you know, yes, we'll there, there isn't, this, yeah, it, it, and honestly, 
with a lot of areas of research, especially like when we get into pharma or just like biomedical, like tech or whatever, things, things in that nature, like hardcore science, like what mm-hmm. we think of. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually like not that questioned to, <laughs> to have corporate ties. Like it's not a thing people really question. It's definitely not a thing that journal editors question because like it's, it's normal. So, so people are like, Oh, okay. So you're a, stock owning employee of this of this pharmaceutical company and you also receive fees from whatever and like you invest actively in like these forms of companies okay we'll note it at the bottom of this article (laughs) but it's not like we're not gonna take (laughs) like we're not gonna take your research especially when it's something like this so there's a lot of um publication bias at work here too where since the medication had such like distinct results, mm-hmm. you know, um, average of 15% loss of weight, like from participants, initial weights, a lot of people lost like a third, you know, mm-hmm. of their initial weight. When you have a result like that, it's almost impossible for that to not get published, even in a journal like the New England Journal of Medicine, which is like one of the most prestigious journals in the world right um so you have publication bias on your side because you got positive results right and then no one in this area is really going to question whether or not to publish this on the basis of your financial conflicts of interest they're just going to note the conflicts of interest and then go on and publish it anyway um and then on top of that you know you have this culture within medicine especially in, in biomedical sciences where, you know, there are just certain forms of research where corporate influence is seen as okay. And a lot of the time, pharmaceutical companies are part of that culture. And definitely when it comes to weight loss, um, (laughs) that's like, that's, that's, and I've said this before, in science, there are some things that we, like, we get outraged about in terms of corporate influence and others not. Like mm-hmm. with tobacco, like if, if, if a tobacco company tries to start a, an organization or a research foundation and do studies on, you know, the health outcomes related to smoking that may portray cigarettes in a less negative light, mm-hmm. then people in public health especially are going to be pissed off about that. And they're going to right. raise the alarm. Right. But when it comes to like Nestle funding research foundations or um, like, like something like this, where like, like, Nobel Nordisk, company like literally, yeah. literally, yeah. then no, everyone's like, oh, cool, private public partnership, when it's really just like mainly private influence over what should be public right. work. But and so yeah. why is that? Why are why that double standard that we are outraged that a tobacco company would do science to try to make their product seem safer, but we are not outraged that a pharmaceutical company will do science to make a drug they can sell and profit off of? Like why, uh, why? fat phobia? Like it's yeah. literally <laughs> like it's literally just fat phobia. There's a lot of different angles there, I guess. Like public health is very proud of how it's like solved tobacco like they <laughs> like it's weird like they're like yeah like we we managed to cut the smoking rate and blah 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 and like all this stuff and it's it's honestly like one of the main examples that people use in like health communication classes or science communication mm-hmm. classes when we're talking about how to encourage or discourage people from doing certain things um yeah tobacco is like that main example as well as that other like health communication campaign move no verb verb it's what you do verb yes yeah. <laughs> which what actually you do. which actually wasn't that effective but that's like a whole other conversation <laughs> right. um but uh so yeah it's it mostly boils down to fat phobia um and i found that you know that's amplified by the way that corporations have always been part of Mm -hmm. you know the quote-unquote obesity prevention like area especially of public health like corporations have just always been there Mm -hmm. so it's Mm -hmm. it's less jarring when something like this happens because it's like oh well this is the way it's always been done right right you don't question this whole system that I mean and I guess the alternative system feels very radical to say like 
pharmaceutical research should only be, I don't know, government sponsored or, um, right. you know, that there shouldn't be a capitalist stake in this mm-hmm. feels like <laughs> when I say it out loud, quite logical, yet also anathema to the way we are programmed. <laughs> so yeah, yeah if, if, if you were to say that in a room full of like, researchers i i think people will be like whoa hold up yeah that's a bit much how do we get anything done yeah yeah right yeah and there is i mean you know just to like not play devil's advocate exactly but just to say like you know these corporations do have huge amounts of money they do directly impact people's health like if we could get them to do to put that money towards useful things like that could be a good thing the problem is they're only putting it towards something profit that you making. And I, right profit making <laughs> and in this case a drug that you and I both feel strongly is going to be much more harmful than it could ever be exactly good. So, this is all aside from the fact that these corporations should not have the money they have anyway right so right. like that's a whole other thing that we right. do not have enough time to get into no yeah that's like a whole separate conversation but yes uh definitely <laughs> worth noting um okay so then let's talk a little bit more about the drug itself I mean as you said it sort of yeah. had these um, quote unquote positive results and that they're, you know, mm-hmm. reporting more weight loss while you're on the drug than, you know, than average or than right. you usually see in these studies. But you also talked in the piece a lot about, I loved this, our short-term memory when it comes to the industry and specifically weight loss drugs. Um, so, you know, tell us a little bit about what we've forgotten about this drug's predecessors that are sort of clouding our ability to assess this drug. Oh, yeah. I mean, if we... If the diet industry was held accountable for all of its past failures and not delivered products and all of this, like all of the things it's done wrong, then it wouldn't exist. So like, <laughs> let's, let's be clear about that. I mean, you know, the diet industry, and when I say the diet industry, obviously I'm talking about manufacturers of weight loss drugs, but also like companies like Weight Watchers or mm. like, you know, individuals who actively profit off of selling weight loss, not necessarily as a thing that happens, but as a dream. Right. Um, Very important distinction. And that's the distinction that I think is really core to this, like this, this cyclical, like how do it somehow we are so drawn to the promise of weight loss that we choose to forget that if you're a fat person living in this country, you have probably tried more than one, more than multiple forms of, of weight loss, dieting, some kind of weird cleansing program. Like you've probably tried some of those things. If you haven't, I think you would be in the minority of fat people. Definitely. Um, but all people, but especially (laughs) minority of all people, especially minority of fat people. And Um, you know, I think that the normalization of that activity of that engaging in like this, this collective fat hate, right. Paired with the fact that like, there are tangible benefits to being smaller. And then also the fact that this industry has so many resources to make sure that we never forget that weight loss is a good idea. Mm -hmm. Like then obviously we're sort of slowly seduced into forgetting the fact that like we've definitely most of us have definitely tried to lose weight and it hasn't happened or it sent us off into spirals of disordered eating um or has had other kinds of like negative implications on our on our lives and you know I think it's really hard to remember that these things don't usually work the way that they're, that we're told they work mm-hmm. because of the fact that like, there's all those other things happening, right? Like we're constantly being remembered. We're constantly being reminded that like fat is bad, constantly being reminded that weight loss is good. And mm-hmm. then like, we see that reified by all of this like media explosion. When something mm-hmm. like this comes out, it's like, it's being talked about as a game changer. This yeah. is going to change people's lives. And there's always, 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 always a steady supply of people waiting in the wings to advocate for something like this. And in addition, advocate for something like this on like a large scale, which honestly, the application of a weight loss recommendation or a technique to like 
community level or population level health that's like fucking unethical unethical that's unethical as hell um we know that encouraging weight loss encouraging body comparison encouraging body dissatisfaction does all kinds of messed up things to our health and we also know that it's incredibly rare that people lose weight and then sustain that weight and we Mm -hmm. also know that the consequences of putting people into a cycle of weight gain and weight loss also has serious implications on our metabolic health Mm -hmm. and yet Mm -hmm. it is completely acceptable to recommend those things on a community level on a population level and there are people in the medical community who will absolutely advocate for that Mm -hmm. And there are lots of reasons why. And sometimes those reasons boil down to dollars. Like, (laughs) and it's a really uncomfortable thing to sit with because I think that regardless about how much we complain about like how bad healthcare is in this country, in this country, especially, but Mm -hmm. in general, um, I think that a lot of us still hold on to the hope that the people who give us healthcare services just have like our best interests in mind right right and being confronted with information that suggests the opposite or suggests that the story might be a little bit more complicated is incredibly uncomfortable yeah um and we give them a you know sort of like expertise or you know we assume that they have some inside knowledge that we don't have about this particular topic Mm -hmm. um which is very you know, it's sort of saying like you're handing over someone, telling someone else has more knowledge about your body than you do, or, you know, your lived experience in your body, the fact that you probably have tried multiple diets, multiple other drugs. And yet still when someone comes in and says this one, this is the one (laughs) you're going to just like discount your own lived experience around that and say like, okay, this is, you know, absolutely. We like get these blinders on. And I know. And, and even with the, with the whole, like, I, I strongly believe that people are, you know, the best experts of their own bodies. Like we live in these bodies every, every damn day. Like, you know, we know when things don't feel right. We know when we're at, when we're content and when we're at ease, like we, we know. Mm -hmm. Um, But even putting that aside, like the fact is that most doctors don't know what to do with fat bodies. Like they're like, you know, there's plenty of studies that suggest that doctors do not feel equipped to deal with patients that are quote unquote obese. Mm -hmm. Like they don't know how to do nutrition education. They spend Mm -hmm. less time giving health education to people who are fat anyway. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that a lot of the restrictions that a lot of fat people face, especially when they're looking to get like, you know, life-saving surgical procedures or transplants, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the, the perceived idea that weight like at a certain weight, you are, you know, you're, you're less able to get through that procedure. Like right. that is also something that I'm very sure is born from doctors just straight up not knowing how to deal with fat bodies. Yes. And, you know, I mean, in medical school, a lot of cadavers, when they're fat, people are just like, oh, I have to like cut through all of this. Oh my God. Oh, wow. oh. So there, <laughs> so there's dehumanizing. It, yeah. Yes. And it also just makes treating fat patients into a burden, like from <laughs> the get go, mm-hmm. like from mm-hmm. the beginning. And then that just gets worse. Yeah. So yes, people are absolutely probably the best experts on their own bodies, but also a lot of doctors don't know what the fuck they're doing when it comes to fat patients, period. Yes, yeah. So. So important. So important to highlight all of that. And with this drug in particular, I mean, why don't we just also quickly spell out? So yeah, it had this Oof. sort of initial 15% weight loss or up to a third weight loss, which sounds, you know, bright and shiny and like some brand yeah. new achievement. But also, what are the concerns about this drug and why is it likely, you know, clearly just another one of these same, you know, the same (laughs) merry-go-round we've been on a million times? Absolutely. So first of all, you know, um, there's somebody, there's a certain someone who engaged in the study and was receiving Wegovy, who is quoted in multiple articles about the medication, saying that she ended up gaining back, like... Mm-hmm. most of the weight that she lost while she was on the medication um, and then also lost some of it and then also gained some of it back. So it's like, that's textbook. That's literally the definition of weight cycling, right? right like, right. so the fact that there is this medication that's being heralded as this game changing diet drug 
There's nothing game changing about it. It's just when you're on it, it fucks with <laughs> your <laughs> pancreas enough that you are sent into um, a process of losing weight that probably is not healthy or organic or makes sense for your body. And then once you're off the drug, you gain it back because that's what happens when you mess with vile systems of your body and then allow them to write themselves again. You settle at the weight that you're probably supposed to be at. Um, Yeah. So you have that. (laughs) And then um, there's also the fact that like, so, so Novo Nordisk, has you know they've sort of perfected the playbook of taking one drug and finding that it has a side effect of weight loss and then Mm -hmm. just like selling it in bigger dosages so that weight loss happens more quickly right um and more effectively yeah (laughs) right um so they did this with another drug saxenda um which was Ozempic, which is like basically the same kind of drug that um, Victoza, which, you know, which, bleh, I get confused. See, these are made up ass names. So one, <laughs> I'm just not even going to try. Okay. Saxenda is Victoza, which is right. another drug that is very similar to Wegovy. Right. right. Um, it's just Victoza at a higher dosage. Got it. And that only difference between them is the dosage and Saxenda is also, you know, um, specifically marketed as a weight loss drug, whereas Victoza is not. Right. It was a um, diabetes medication, right? Right. It's a diet. Yeah. It's a type two diabetes medication. Yeah. Um, and it is very effective at doing that. Yeah. Um, but it's not meant for weight loss. So, <laughs> and then you have, um, Ozempic, which is the original like it's the Wegovy version one <laughs> where Beta it's the drug. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's the drug that they amplified the dosage to, to get Wegovy. That's what Ozempic is. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> Victoza, which again is like a, that other weight loss drug, but like the first version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Victoza was the subject of a major 2017 federal case against Novo Nordisk. Novo Nordisk was ordered to pay $58.65 million um, to the federal government and state Medicaid programs because they intentionally not, this is not, this is not like, you know, it was ruled (laughs) that they intentionally minimized the risks for developing a rare form of cancer like to physicians that would be prescribing this medication to their patients. Um, and so taking some deep breaths with that. I yes, mean, I read just it like, but I'm just, just, I'm just letting it soak in again. Um, it, it was, yeah, yeah. Let's definitely have a ton of media headlines heralding this as this new victory of mm-hmm. modern medicine. Yes. Great. Great. Okay. <laughs> Okay. So it's, I want, and you know, I'm not saying that Victoza, like the deal with Victoza is what is what's going to happen with Wegovy. That doesn't even need to be the case for this to be just a failure and hazard to everybody's health. Right. Um, The point is that if a company has a history of doing things for the purpose of profit that intentionally to endanger people's lives like maybe that company should not still be making things that people will ingest also <laughs> just like moving on from that like if we know that a medication has risks like serious risks even in small doses and then you apply the same technique that you use to rebrand that medication into a weight loss medication. You use that to apply to another medication that also is like going to have a boxed warning as well. Like why, why, how was that allowed to happen? Like how was that allowed to happen? (laughs) Um, you know, it's really hard to find out if people from the FDA have taken corporate money. I've tried to figure that out um, mm-hmm. because I really didn't see any other way for Wegovy to have been approved. Just, you know, it's been a few years since a, a drug has been approved for weight loss by the FDA. So 
you know, this is a big deal. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if the FDA has ever approved a potentially risky medication, especially after a corporation has been found to intentionally mislead physicians. I don't know Mm -hmm. if that's something that has happened before in history, Mm -hmm. but like clearly this is something that we should be worried about. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there's just so many red flags everywhere you look on <laughs> yeah. this one. So, except none of them were being reported in any of the mainstream media. <laughs> no. So people no. need to read your work because you were the one putting <laughs> this together. And yes. yeah, it's just, it's, it's such lazy, you know, as a journalist, it's just such lazy journalism. When I read these articles that are, you know, like here is a patient who loved it and here is the drug manufacturer saying why it's great in the end. Like it's a press release. It's not journalism. It's I mean, just... it's the same way that like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you saw how the American Academy of, of Pediatrics like came out supporting um bariatric surgery yes. for like teens. Yes. Yes. And it's the same thing with like, you know, I was like, damn, NPR should be ashamed of itself because the I read NPR that article. Case, it was a was, travesty. A travesty. I was like, how, how is the fact that the only risks that were focused on in that piece were like risks of promiscuity following weight loss? Like, I was like, the boys will flock to her now. Yeah. Or like, she'll be socially relevant. Like, oh no. It's like, are you <laughs> fucking kidding me? Like, yeah. What? And it's like but- the, the, like the girl's mom was against her getting it, but not because yeah. she was worried about the risks of the surgery, but because she thought she hadn't like tried hard enough to lose weight. And like that was completely unexamined, you know, it was like, yeah. it was like just playing into that stereotype that like, you know, you're a failure if you want weight loss surgery without looking at like, uh, yeah. And then I can't really even talk about also, it. Also like the whole portraying that doctor that like helped her get the surgery as right. some kind of savior. Oh yeah. Hero, especially since sure. that particular doctor is like, honestly, I want to, I want to start like, I don't know, like a, like a pool of like a, I want to gamble basically on the chance that this specific <laughs> doctor shows up in an article about weight stigma because yeah. she's always, always, always around. Yeah. And she's heralded by, you know, the, yeah. like by medicine as like this, this crusader for dismantling weight stigma. And I'm just like, what the fuck is so different about her from the people who are just more obvious about hating my body? Like what is. Yeah. There is yeah. nothing here. I honestly find it more dangerous that someone would hide their disgust for fatness in like not genuine concern, like for yeah. Yeah. for my well being. Well, so, and the tell is always when they come around and say like, "So we're you know we're helping these kids lose weight to avoid weight stigma." It's like that's not how you fight stigma. You don't fight stigma yeah. by taking the marginalized person and making them assimilate. <laughs> <laughs> That's the opposite of fighting the stigma. That's reinforcing the stigma. Literally so. the opposite. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and yeah. So there's stuff like that where, you know, we can't really rely on most journalists, mm-hmm. I, at least to give us the, the real on what is happening with these. I mean, like, I know that a co- colleague of mine tried to write something about WeGoV. Mm-hmm. You know, they tried and yeah. I think in, I forget in which outlet, but they really tried to get something published and they were told that, that this kind of like discourse was just too much. Like it was, it was not, you know, it was, it, it was just too controversial, too much and they didn't want to publish it. And I've had similar obstacles. I mean, yeah. my obstacle has just been that like, I've pitched this to no less than 15 places and no one will get back to me. (laughs) So like, it's, 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 it's ridiculous because, you know, I think that with how pervasive weight stigma is, it, it makes it seem like there's no one that gives a shit about it at all. But there are people like you, like me, like my colleagues, like fat activists, like, like people that, really do this every single day like they're constantly thinking about weight Mm -hmm. stigma how to dismantle it constantly working to do that but they get shut down at every single angle and yeah it's exhausting it's exhausting (laughs) what i see too and this actually segues me well to the next thing i wanted to talk to you about is i often run into this 
attitude with this can be with editors at different outlets or just, you know, I, this comes up with my readers often and just sort of mm-hmm. across the board. There's this like, yes, we're very worried about weight stigma. Yes, it's this terrible problem, but oh my God, obesity equals death. And that's the real danger. And so it's almost like we have to sacrifice people's mental health to fight this, you know, we're fighting this public health war, right? And I think that discourse obviously really comes out of the public health world. And it really is about how the diet industry has infiltrated public health discourse. So, you know, when you, even when you look in the weight stigma research, you'll see studies on the dangers of dieting that won't be looking at the dangers of, you know, the campaigns, the anti-obesity campaigns that promote it, that promote dieting. Right. And so, yeah. So talk a little bit about that, you know, how you see diet culture and fat phobia showing up in public health and how these two things got so enmeshed because it's, oh my God. I think that's really where a lot of this, like, the shutting down. It's like, but of course there are some people who really need the weight loss drug or some people who really need the surgery. And so at that point, I'll talk about stigma stops while we save these lives. <laughs> like do these exceptions, which, you know, it, even in those exceptions, I often question the utility of yes. weight yeah. loss as a tactic. Um, these exceptions don't make rules, but in, in terms of public health, I mean, I don't, <sighs> I don't see an area of research that is not like impacted in some way to some depth by diet culture, by the diet industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I do, I'm doing my PhD in, in a behavioral science department. Like I'm surrounded by people who do behavioral interventions on obesity. Um, And it's just the most whacked shit ever because I like, and, and, you know, and I think that something that I've learned throughout that experience is that a lot of people are completely disconnected from how certain areas of science really come to be, how certain areas of public health really come to be. And so they just, when you try to say like, oh, hey, maybe what we're doing in public health is shitty. Like to a lot of people, mm-hmm. when you bring that up, they're just like, uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, right. you're just like, that's, ridiculous. we are noble saviors here. Like, yeah. We are, they're yeah. just like that. That cannot be the case. Yeah. Um, and you know, this is research that I'm currently doing now for my own book proposal. Like how deep does obesity prevention initiatives really go? Because I remember, um, about a year ago when I was in a class and I was reading and I talk about this book all the time because it's incredible. Um, uh, Fit to be Citizens by Natalia Molina who talks about um, Mexican, Chinese and Japanese immigrants in the 18th century, no 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century um, that migrate to San Francisco Mm-hmm. And it discusses, you know, their experiences being actively marginalized by the San Francisco. No, no, not San Francisco, Los Angeles. I'm thinking okay. of San Francisco by the lot, by the, by the Los Angeles County and city public health departments. Um, and it's a really good read. I recommend that people pick it up. It's a very accessible language. Um, Melina is like a really, really good writer, but you know, even in those, I remember like those health interventions that they would target towards Mexican moms in the early 1900s, late 1800s. Um, a lot of that was critiquing their diet yes. and the way they ate. Yes. Um, and <laughs> so, so even that falls into the parameters of an obesity prevention yes. initiative. Definitely. And that's something that like, you know, wouldn't necessarily be classified as one because it falls into the realm of maternal and child health, which is honestly one of the most fat phobic areas of research I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. But um I mean, it's the same reason why like that survey returned that OBGYNs are like one of the most fat phobic areas mm-hmm. of medicine. Mm-hmm, <laughs> like mm-hmm. these things are not a coincidence. Yeah. Um, there's a reason like for them. Police women, <laughs> women's bodies, mother's bodies, mothers of colors bodies yes oh yeah all need to be policed and controlled as much as possible yeah yeah so we have to understand that like critiquing people's diets especially people from other cultures critiquing people's diets critiquing the way they feed their kids critiquing their cultural foods um 
I, I feel like those were things that were, those were practices that really became bolstered by public health initiatives, Mm -hmm. justified by the faulty science that they put out to justify their bigotry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now it's a whole area of research. You know, now that's not just, you know, critiquing immigrant mothers. That's, that's obesity prevention research. Like that's a thing. Like that has, (laughs) that has journals, that has grants, that has, that has clout. Um, so it goes deep. Yeah. It goes really, really deep. And it's not just relegated to the areas of research that look at, you know, eating. It's also about like physical activity research mm-hmm. and oh, good Lord. And also people who do research on racial health disparities often fall back on like fat phobic racial logics for why some people are healthy and why others are not. Ooh, say more about that. That's yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, so first of all, there's like the the enduring long-lived fallacy that race is biological, which it is not. Right. Um but when you make race biological and you essentially like make culture that's something inherent to an individual Mm -hmm. then you say that then you can make the case that their way of eating and their way of cooking is like an inherent pathology like Uh, that is yes (laughs) and you know some people don't even bring race into the picture they're just like oh you know some cultures are just so unhealthy and we need to help them right um and that's something that like you've seen i've seen like these are they're they're you know and 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 it's so you know all of its bullshit because of just how malleable and subjective it is like now that quinoa and avocado are seen as superfoods like mm-hmm. now it's okay that people of color were the ones who like yeah and really kale eat them. and collard greens and, and kale and, and collard green. greens yeah yeah like fuck off like <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I see something like that, I'm just like, this is how I know that none of this is really rooted in anything but our internal hatred for certain kinds of people. Yeah. And, you know, when you start to look at things through that lens, it's a really depressing lens. I don't recommend doing it all the time, (laughs) but it's, it's often the, the perspective that I use when I'm thinking of things like Wegovi, because Mm -hmm. I'm like, who is benefiting from this drug being approved who is benefiting from you know what it does in the meantime and also who is benefiting from what happens afterwards because Mm -hmm. i remember someone made such a wonderful comment um when i first put out my article and they were just like this is going to lead to a whole generation of diabetics like the way that this messes with people's insulin production Yeah. yeah and like you know, that's something that that's a consequence that I think will happen, you know, even if a few years from now, the FDA is like, this is not a thing that should have ever been approved. Mm-hmm. The dam- mm-hmm. By that point, the damage is already done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and since it's it's fat people that are going to be prescribed this drug, right. that just feeds into the idea that fatness is inherent, inher- inherently pathological. Right. And like... And thus the cycle begins again. Right. Like maybe if we didn't keep intervening in fatness with these products and (laughs) you know plants that are so health damaging, maybe. Oh yeah. It would not be. Yeah. Society. That makes maybe. That's that's uh, that's you know, nice wishing. Nice wishing there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, in my fantasy world, that's how it goes. Um, yeah. So I do, the last thing I want to talk to you about is the, how all of this then plays out in food culture and, you know, particularly, so a lot of my listeners are parents. And so Mm. I get a lot of questions around kids and processed foods, and there's a lot of fears around processed foods. And, you know, I want to hold space for the fact that like parents are under a huge amount of pressure to feed our kids perfectly and the messages we get around that. But I think it's very useful to unpack for people how much the sort of anti-processed food argument is rooted in fat phobia and racism and classism. Um, because I think that people don't, you know, again, there's like a whole bunch of new studies I was just looking at that came out this week about, you know, looking like at the sort of rates of processed food in kids' diets and then immediately oh. linking them to health problems. And, you know, so there's this never ending 
um, onslaught of research in that area, much like with the weight loss drugs. And we see these headlines and we think, okay, well, there it is. Salt, sugar, and fat is so bad for us. You know, processed foods are so, the ultra processed foods are so bad for us. Whatever that means. Right, right. That term. (laughs) And we're not, again, we're not looking at this larger narrative. So can you speak to that a little bit and kind of unpack that narrative for us? Oh, yeah. I mean, so first, this and this these are this is more of a, a new thought that I've been thinking through because I just I wonder about the utility of making certain kinds of food foods that are usually mostly available like more widely available to people of color mm-hmm. um especially black people low income black people um I think about the utility of marketing those foods as something that, you know, health conscious, respectable people shouldn't be wearing, like shouldn't be eating. Mm-hmm. Like I think about who benefits from that. And I feel like a lot of the discourse that demonizes certain foods over others is honestly, it, it usually works out as some form of marketing ploy to push some kind of new form of eating, whether that's like mm. clean eating or, or being like, Oh, we all have to be vegan or we all have to eat clean or mm-hmm. what, or mm-hmm. we all have to buy organic foods, you know, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I see it is that the more we impose hierarchies on food, there will always be certain foods that we have a fixation on because those are the foods that we shouldn't be eating. And in terms of like parenting, I feel like that is so relevant because Mm -hmm. I, you know, I just think about how, when I was younger, my fixation on eating more and more first originally stemmed from hunger because like I was restricted you know, mm-hmm. in terms of my diet, I have always lived in a fat body at any age. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, when it came to the point where, you know, certain, certain situations collided in a way that made it so restriction was an enforceable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that was when I became most fixated with food. Mm-hmm, I didn't become course. fixated with, you know, ultra processed food or like that wasn't a thing that I really even gave a shit about when I was a kid. I was like, I want to eat more of the food that like I had for dinner because I'm still hungry and I live in this yeah. body and my body is telling me that it needs food. And eventually that fixation moved away from being something that I physically felt was necessary and more a compulsion that I had to fulfill. Because if I didn't have it, it meant that I had let some kind of need go unfulfilled. And that caused me a lot of distress. And so when, you know, we talk about ultra processed foods, I feel like, especially in, in areas of parenting, we're just like, how do we make kids less fixated on these foods? How do we make mm-hmm. kids like these foods less? You know, like mm-hmm. marketing for these foods is all bright and colorful and it draws people in and kids are always told not to eat them. So, you know, they might like them more and, and all this stuff. But I honestly tell people to, to start with like their relationship with the food they eat on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. Just because, you know, I think the narrative that, you know, food abuse, whatever that means, mm-hmm. <laughs> like food abuse, that food abuse starts with foods that are, you know, unhealthy. I'm air quoting here, yeah. unhealthy, like right. that idea that that's where it starts. I feel like that is really just misinformed and incorrect, yeah. but it's something that so many of us feed into and it's extremely prominent in literature that is targeted towards parents because mm-hmm. just because of the way that a lot of these foods are age coded. So like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, like, is there a reason why like Lunchables and other forms of prepackaged ultra processed foods, is there a reason like why those are so bad and also for kids? Like, Okay. Yeah, sure. I think that's a conversation worth having, but I yeah. also think that like a lot of the time it's a distraction. Yeah. I think, I think that's a really well, you're articulating like a key tension I think about a lot, which is like, 
does, you know, the, the processed food industry, much like the diet industry could certainly use more oversight, could certainly have stand to have someone coming in and saying, Hey, stop with the predatory yes. marketing tactics, like stop Absolutely. disproportionately marketing communities of color, stop disproportionately marketing to kids. Yeah. You know, all of that would be super and is really important. But when we only focus on for some reason, like the conversation, we lose that nuance and it becomes like, these foods are bad. You are bad if you feed them to your child. The yeah. End. And it's like, yeah, so much more complicated than that. These foods in and of themselves are not terrible. It's the like, uh, you know, it's, it's the excessive marketing and the, you know, the way that's done in this disproportionate way that is the problem. Um, it's the way that these foods give in to the fixation we already have about eating. Right. Right. right? Like they amplify that. Right. Like yeah. if, you know, I'm a child and like I was, you know, at some mm -hmm. point, if I'm a child and I am already thinking about food and then I am suddenly bombarded by food marketing. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. those are things that feed into each other. It's not like the, it's not like the food right. marketing started my issues with food. But so if like, you hadn't been restricted, exactly, you would have I wouldn't been able give to a shit. Right. You could navigate like, <laughs> the marketing much easier. Right. Exactly. Like so I would have. That's the starting point. Yeah. That's like, the thing. Don't like, restrict it, kids. Do not restrict kids, please. Like, yeah. And you know, and and I hear like, oh well, if I don't restrict my kid, then then they'll eat something that they'll they'll eat whatever they want until they're sick. And it's like, you know, sometimes we need to like have, have bad confidence. Yeah, like yeah. we need to have that outcome in order to be yeah. able to learn from that experience. Yeah, it's part um, of learning how to navigate these foods. Yeah, and it if is. you if you restrict your kid around them, they will have that experience at a friend's house on a play date or something. You know, they won't yeah. like it'll it'll happen one way or the other. So yeah. And also we have to think about how a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, the fixation that we have on ultra processed foods in general that, and like all of this insistence that we eat a certain way that's cleaner, more healthier, blah, blah, blah. Like all of those things just demonize like other people. Mm -hmm. Like, right. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's where a lot of that comes from. It comes from the inherent distaste that we have for poor people, for fat people, for black people who are often more, more often than not, like forced into a position to buy foods that fall into the category of processed or ultra processed yeah. because of the fact that they have restricted access to resources to buy other right. kinds of foods. Right. Like, this, so like this doesn't, yeah. Like, this doesn't, like, boil down to anything real in terms right. of, like, it, 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 this is literally just another way to push bigotry and enforce hierarchies. And the yes. more we think about it like that, then the next time, you know, it's easier for us to be like, well, this thing is telling me that un unless I have this prepackaged meal that will help me lose weight, then I'm a bad person. It becomes easier to unpack that and mm -hmm. like point out why that's bullshit when we mm -hmm. understand that these, you know, like these are not fueled by health promoting goals. They're promoted, they're, they're fueled by profit seeking goals that are also amplified by division and bigotry. Yes. Like that's what Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Something I often think about when parents are articulating these anxieties to me is like, think about how much of this is honestly about your concern for your child's health and how much of this is about your concern for your perception as a parent. And I think yes. you're articulating something so important there, which is especially like I'm thinking about kids' lunches and yeah. the standards for kids' lunches have gotten just, you know, there's like supposed to be like four types of produce and a rainbow <laughs> and everything's, you know, it's like insane um oh no <laughs> it's it's insane and it's all like white ladies on instagram performing their parenting in this way and, and right. performing their performing their like you know like white savior lady thing right right i mean yeah and performance really like performance is is like a very it's like it's a crucial social tool right, right. but it's not a thing to base your lifestyle on right. like it's right. <laughs> like it's okay to yeah. be like oh my god i made this really cute lunch for my kids yeah. like this sandwich looks like a face and it's smiling <laughs> and i can't wait to talk about this with like the other parents that i know that's totally cool yeah. the thing that's not okay is taking that those values that you have around that sandwich and applying it to how you're treating your human child yes. 
That's really like, it. Yeah. It's really it. And, and that you're then judging the other parents, such as myself, who are packing Uncrustables for our kids' lunch. Right. Because... Oh my God. I love Uncrustables. Look, Uncrustables if I don't... are fucking great. I have Uncrustables because as a semi-functioning adult, I, if I don't have them, I might not eat anything. Like that's just like, they're amazing. They're so good. They're so great. I also want to say that like, you know, just because you're a parent doesn't mean that you've resolved your own issues with food. So like unpack that shit, like figure out, you know, your hangups around food and how you might be projecting, how you might be projecting (laughs) those. Like my microphone just fell. Um, You're good. You're good. Okay, cool. And how you might be projecting those on to your child. Because, you know, a lot of the times we're just like, we're we're guided by these like conventional nuggets of wisdom. And a lot of the times those conventional nuggets of wisdom are just like trauma that we're Mm. still holding on to. And they're guiding us through our lives and also through the lives of our families. And it, and it, and it literally doesn't lead anywhere good. Like it doesn't. That's such a good point. That's such a good point. (laughs) Mikey, thank you so much. This was an amazing conversation. I we covered so much, so many fascinating things, and I'm really, really <laughs> thank grateful you for to having you. me. I don't so, usually talk about this kind of stuff, so it's it's fun. Oh, it's awesome! I knew you were the perfect person to talk to about it. Um, so I want all of my readers to go follow you and support your work and join your Patreon. So tell us all of the ways that people can follow you and support your work. Oh yeah. Um, so on Twitter, which I spend way too much time on, I'm, uh, it's just like my first name. So it's at Marcus L M A R Q U I S E L E. Um, on, on, on Instagram, I'm fat Marcus L. For some reason, my name is like not available as a username, which I take a lot of offense to because I know no one else has my name. Um, (laughs) I try, I've tried so many times and they're just like, no. And I'm like, no, well, I know it. no one else has my paint. Please give it to me. Um, and, <laughs> and I'm also on Patreon. Um, it's patreon.com slash Marcusel. Um, I post, I'm, I'm currently working through a fat studies, uh, public health syllabus. So if that's of interest to anyone, yes. um, I break down a lot of what we're literally talking about right now. Um, in terms of how fat phobia became a thing, especially in the sciences and, and all of the different people involved in that. And it, so it's, it can, it gets real fun. It gets real yeah. fun. Um, and you know, if you think that there's like some concerns or questions about that you have around fat phobia, like I'm always, always, always taking questions through my website. Um, and I use those questions actually to, uh, like, that those are the subject of my semi biweekly newsletter that I put out through Patreon as well. Awesome. So, yeah. I am going to have links to all of that in the transcript so people can find your work. And Yay. yeah, I mean, there's so much I'm in awe of what you produce and you know, the level at which you're doing this is just amazing. So Aww, thank thanks. you so much. <laughs> thanks. <laughs>